Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. believe Moses parted the Red Sea and Jesus came back from the dead, others are certain that exorcisms occur, ghosts haunt addicts, and the blessed can cure the terminally ill. Though miracles are immensely improbable, people have embraced them for millennia, seeing in them proof of a supernatural world that resists scientific explanation. In the miracle myth, why belief in the resurrection and the supernatural is unjustified, Professor Larry Shapiro helps us to think more critically about our belief in the improbable casting a skeptical eye on attempts to justify belief in the supernatural and laying bare the fallacies that such attempts commit. Through arguments and accessible analysis, Larry Shapiro sharpens our critical faculties so we become less susceptible to tales of myths and miracles and learn how, ultimately, to evaluate claims regarding vastly improbable events on our own. Shapiro acknowledges that belief in miracles could be harmless, but cautions against allowing such beliefs to guide how we live our lives. His investigation reminds us of the importance of evidence and rational thinking as we explore the unknown. Larry Shapiro is a professor of philosophy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Besides his occasional inquiry into the status of miracles, he primarily researches philosophy of psychology and philosophy of mind, currently focusing on issues concerning multiple realization and embodied cognition. He's the author of a number of books and the editor of the Rutledge Handbook of Embodied Cognition. He's with us today to talk about his new book. Hello, my name's Carrie Lynn Evans, and you're listening to New Books in Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, my guest is Professor Larry Shapiro, who's agreed to talk with us about his new book, The Miracle Myth, Why Belief in the Resurrection and the Supernatural is Unjustified. So Larry, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm excited to be talking to you. So first, maybe start by telling us a bit about yourself and how you came to work in your field. Well, let's see. I'm uh, originally from New Jersey. Not that that's very interesting, but um, went to uh, college and was interested in studying science. But I discovered that I didn't really like lab work, although I liked the sorts of questions that scientists were interested in. I liked the way that they reasoned about problems. And it turned out there's this area called philosophy of science, which uh, is very intimately connected with scientific reasoning and trying to understand scientific reasoning, but you don't have to do any lab work. So I went in that direction and got my PhD in philosophy at University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and then ended up with a job at University of Wisconsin-Madison. Excellent. Makes a lot of sense to me. Um, All right. Tell us how you came to write this book in particular, which isn't exactly in the field of uh, the philosophy of science. That's right. Uh, My main area of of, uh, expertise is philosophy of psychology and cognitive science. But this is a book that grew out of frustrations I was having with the direction that the United States is taking politically, where there are uh, large numbers of evangelical voters who are voting for candidates and for policies that I find uh, very distasteful. And a lot of their justification for voting the way that they vote 
is, they say, uh, rooted in their Christian faith. And I wanted to write a book that would be accessible and explain why certain beliefs, uh, religious beliefs, aren't justified. I don't have any uh, illusions about whether this will change any minds, but it was it was a way to release some frustration I had. Hmm. That's interesting. All right. Well, we'll move right along to the first chapter then um, and delve into the heart of the matter. You start with uh, laying the groundwork, groundwork in terms of belief, uh, justification for belief, uh, including two rather curious circumstances, those being that uh, you can be justified in believing in things that do not really exist, as well as not being justified in things that do exist. Uh, So maybe start by explaining these ideas where opinion fits into that and why these distinctions matter. Sure. There there are two dimensions to lots of beliefs. Uh, One dimension is whether the belief is true or whether it's false. And that's determined by how the world is. So if you have a belief that Bigfoot exists, whether this belief is true depends on whether there are Bigfoot feet, Bigfoots in the world uh, or not. So that's one dimension. Another dimension of, uh, that we could talk about when thinking about beliefs is justification. So a belief can be justified or not. Um, now take a case where a belief in Bigfoot, say, is false. It's probably also unjustified because the evidence that we have for forming that belief isn't adequate. It's not strong enough to compel us to believe that such a thing exists. But we could have false beliefs that a lot of evidence supports. So for many years, for decades, for centuries, people believed that F equals MA, one of Newton's laws. And the evidence for this was overwhelming. People were justified in believing this, but then it turned out, once Einstein came along and explained relativity, that that belief is, strictly speaking, false. The world isn't that way. So that's a case of a justified belief that's false. And then we can have unjustified beliefs that are true. So right now, I think that we're not justified in believing that there's life on Mars. We simply don't have enough evidence to justify that belief. Justification means that, or to say that a belief is justified is to say it's more probably true than false. And we're not there yet with questions about life on Mars. So if you believe today that there's life on Mars, your belief is unjustified. And it could be that there is life on Mars. It could be that your belief is true that there's life on Mars, but you're still not justified in believing that. So my uh, my interest is in asking whether beliefs in miracles are justified. I'm not asking whether beliefs in miracles are true. So it's my position that regardless of whether, say, Jesus was resurrected or Lazarus was raised from the dead, whether that's true or not, my claim is, my arguments are, that we're not justified in believing such claims. Oh, and you asked about opinion. Opinions are the kinds of things that I think are neither true nor false. So I might have an opinion that the best flavor ice cream is chocolate. Uh, I certainly believe this. I believe it strongly. I would argue with people who rejected that belief, but 
it's not the kind of claim that's true or false. It's simply an expression of my own subjective taste. How the world is doesn't determine whether that's true or false. So in your first chapter, you also, you use an illustration in the story of a man that you meet who tells you about a frog. And you go back to this example uh, throughout the book. Uh, you also use additional examples, which I think are really good illustrations of bringing to life the, the uh, philosophical types of arguments that you're making. So why don't you go ahead and tell us about uh, your frog story and how that works in? Sure, sure, Carrie Lynn. The, the frog story is a story about a uh, I imagine you're sitting in a bar, uh, maybe traveling on, on business or something, and you find yourself next to a person who starts a conversation with you very pleasantly enough. And and as the evening wears on and you drink more beer, he starts telling you these tales of the Karnatakan frog, which is a frog in the Karnataka region of India, which performs miracles. It, it, uh, causes the resurrection of pets and the rejuvenation of lost pet limbs, and it speaks various languages and on and on. And uh, the question that uh, I'm interested in exploring with this story is whether you should believe this fellow, Jim, about what he's telling you with respect to this frog and why you should or should not accept his claims, whether his claims are justified and what that would mean. And of course, uh, it's not even a thinly disguised parallel to Christian belief in, in the resurrection. And as the, as the book goes on and we learn more about this frog and we learn more about what it means for a belief to be justified and how you might justify certain beliefs, uh, the story of the frog comes in handy to, to make the points in a simple way, which then allows me to, to generalize to, to other sorts of supernatural beliefs and Christian beliefs. Exactly. And I should say, I'm not interested in just picking on Christians. Uh, I have the same view uh, about any sort of religious belief that uh, is based on some sort of uh, claims about miracles. So any sort of miracle-based or supernatural-based religion is is among my targets. Fair enough. Let's move on to miracles. Uh, your second chapter uh, focuses on clarifying exactly what counts as a miracle. So you're, you're uh, defining your terms here. You say that the two basic criteria are that they are extremely improbable, as in they happen very infrequently, and that they are supernatural in nature. So tell us more about this. Sure. When I was thinking about what makes something a miracle, I did a lot of reading, of course, Miracles have been a topic of interest to uh, to philosophers for for centuries, uh, as well as Christian thinkers for for that long, and and Jews for even longer. Um, and there is no sort of consensus, I think, about whether some given event is a miracle or not. And some philosophers have even rejected the the idea that the idea of a miracle is is coherent. But it does seem that from thinking about miracles and reading this stuff, there are two features that um, seem to have gathered some sort of consensus um, in, in saying that they're important for miracles. One is that miracles should be improbable events. You shouldn't every day of your life experience miracles. Uh, if the sun rises every morning, no one would think that the rising sun is a miracle. 
one of the reasons why we think of miracles as something that should be really improbable is that they're supposed to be violations of a law of nature. They're business not as usual. So if the sun rises every morning, we begin to think, well, that can't be a miracle. It's happening all the time. It must be natural. For a miracle to be a violation of the law of nature, it should be something that just doesn't happen all the time. That's what we expect of things in nature. So improbability is is one property that we attach to miracles. If we want to know whether something is a miracle, it's reasonable to ask whether it's something we see every day or whether it's something that occurs extremely infrequently. And the other property, which is related to that first one, concerns the cause or the origin of a miracle. So miracles, as I said, are violations of laws of nature. And more specifically, a miracle should be something that is caused by something outside nature, something supernatural, typically something divine, although I won't insist on that. But when we ask why we have suspicions that, say, Jesus's resurrection or Moses's parting of the sea is a miracle, the first thing we might point out is how unlikely or improbable it is. And the second thing we would say is that, well, it's been caused by something divine. And the reason we think it's caused by something divine is simply because it's so improbable. It's business not as usual. And so when we find an event that is extremely improbable and that we attribute to a divine author, we've got a miracle in our hands. Okay. So next you move to the question of whether or not um, belief in miracles as a result of the supernatural or or the typically divine forces can be justified at all. And you look at uh, John Locke's analysis of the biblical account of Moses and Aaron's confrontation with the Pharaoh of Egypt, um, which in the past I've actually referred to as a god off. Um, Moses and the Pharaoh have this uh, this confrontation about whose god is better, um, and and so you use that. Uh, John Locke does an analysis of that in support, I believe, of miracles, and you break that down for why that doesn't work for you, highlighting in particular the role of background assumptions and alternate hypotheses here. So can you take us through that? Yeah. Before we get there, though, let me just say that I've identified two features of miracles, their improbability and their supernatural or divine authorship. And because each of those are important features of miracles, one way to question whether we're justified in believing in miracles is to challenge justification in the belief of either of those conditions. So if I could give you good reason to doubt that something really improbable actually occurred, then that would be a reason to doubt a miracle. And likewise, if I can give you a reason to doubt that the cause of some improbable event was something supernatural or divine, then again, I've given you a reason to doubt that that miracle actually occurred or that there was a miracle. So now that the structure of miracles is on the table. The two features that constitute miracles are are explicit. My job is to explain why we're not justified in believing the sorts of improbable events that that, um, believers in miracles accept, 
and why we're not justified in believing that an event, given that it actually occurred, improbable as it might have been, actually had divine authorship. So the, um, the discussion of Locke is addressing that second feature of miracles, the divine authorship. So the, the, the situation is this. We're confronted with an event that is really bizarre. It's unlike anything we've seen before. And our job now is to ask, what's the cause of this sort of event? If it's a miracle, then we better know that the cause or better have justified belief that the cause of this event was God or something supernatural like that. So there's um, Moses and Aaron, and they're trying to convince the Pharaoh to, to let the Israelites free. And a miracle, purportedly, takes place. Aaron turns his staff into a serpent, into a snake. And in response, the Pharaoh then has his sorcerers turn their staffs into snakes. And the reason why this is kind of a good move on the Pharaoh's part is because I guess he was thinking he shouldn't accept that God is on the side of Moses and Aaron simply because Aaron's staff turns into a snake Because after all, his sorcerers can turn staffs into snakes. So how do we know that God is really behind the apparent miracle that that Aaron has just displayed? Uh, So it's it's a good way of challenging the claim that what the Pharaoh just saw was a miracle. Looks like something else might have caused Aaron's snake to turn into a, uh, sorry, Aaron's staff to turn into a snake. And then the story is that that this staff that uh, Aaron has turned into a snake consumes the sorcerer's snakes. And this is supposed to be further evidence that, in fact, it is God who's working behind the scenes and, and creating this miracle. So now the question is, the question I ask is, how do we know that it was really God working behind the scene to make Aaron's staff into a, into a serpent? And this takes us into the form of inference that seems to be necessary in order to infer a cause of an event from the event itself. And this form of inference is called inference to the best explanation. So should I talk about that for a little bit? Oh, please do. Okay. We use inference to the best explanation all the time. It's a kind of inference we rely on when we're trying to figure out something, trying to figure out how or what is behind some event that we're actually observing. So we're often unable to observe causes. When I wake up every morning, actually this is no longer true, but it used to be true that I would wake up every morning and go to my front stoop and pick up the newspaper. I now read the newspaper online, but I didn't see how this newspaper was delivered. I know it was delivered because it's on my stoop. And so it's incumbent on me as a critical thinker to perform some kind of inference if I want to get to the bottom of its, of, of its origins. What caused the newspaper to be on my stoop? And so I'll run through various hypotheses. Maybe it fell from the sky. Maybe it's spontaneously generated. 
maybe a deliverer came by and threw it under the stoop. So those are different hypotheses. They're hypotheses because I'm making speculations about something I didn't see. I didn't see how the newspaper got there. And what inference of the best explanation is supposed to do is supposed to license a conclusion about which of those hypotheses, hypotheses all of which can explain how the newspaper got there, is the best explanation. And obviously, it's it's not that the newspaper fell from the sky or that it spontaneously generated. It's that there was a, a newspaper deliverer who, who brought me that newspaper and who threw it there. Take another example. I might have uh, a cookie thief in my house who's left the cookie jar empty, and I have to try to figure out who the thief was. So I look around for evidence, and I see crumbs on the counter. I see smudges on the, on the, on the cabinets. Uh, I see a trail of crumbs leading to one of my daughter's bedrooms. That's the evidence that I have. And now I have hypotheses to consider. I've got two daughters, so I've got two hypotheses I'm willing to consider for who stole the cookies. And I'll think about which of my daughters might be the sloppy one and which might be the neat one. Which of my daughters likes cookies and which daughter doesn't like cookies? And so with these additional assumptions in place, I can then infer that it was my younger daughter who stole the cookies because she's the one who prefers cookies, who makes a mess, who leaves crumbs to her bedroom. So inference to the best explanation is a way of deciding what cause that you didn't observe is responsible for what you are observing. Okay, so that's the, the basic idea there. Now, when we talk about miracles, we're seeing something, something really amazing, like a staff turning into a snake or the Red Sea parting. And if it's really a miracle, then the cause of this thing has to be God. How do we know it's God? That's one hypothesis. Just as I had several hypotheses to explain how the newspaper got on my stoop and several hypotheses to explain how my cookie jar found itself to be empty, I have a lot of hypotheses to explain how the Red Sea might have parted or who, how Aaron's staff might have turned into a serpent. So one hypothesis is this. It was God. That's the one that uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition accepts. Another hypothesis is that there were 17 gods working together to turn Aaron's staff into a serpent. Another hypothesis is that there were 14 gods doing the same thing. Another hypothesis is that Aaron was actually a magician who was very adept at making making it, it appear as if his staff had turned into a serpent. Or maybe they're extraterrestrials who have some sort of weird beam that they focus on the staff turning it into a serpent. So those are all hypotheses that all explain the evidence. And then the job is to figure out which of those are true. Now, with the case of my daughters or the case of the newspaper, what we can do is can think about what assumptions are going into our um, inference and test those assumptions and in that way eliminate one hypothesis and favor another hypothesis. So let's talk about my daughters to see how this works. 
I assume that one of my daughters is messy and the other neat. One of my daughters likes cookies and the other doesn't. And I can test these assumptions. I can observe my daughters. I can see that one of them leaves her stuff all over the floor and the other puts her stuff away. And one of them avoids cookies and the other eats them. So now I know which of my assumptions are true. And given that, I have reason to prefer the hypothesis that it was my messy daughter. But how do I go about making testing various assumptions that are necessary to eliminate some of the hypotheses with respect to Aaron, Aaron's staff and favor other hypotheses? This doesn't seem to me possible. What evidence is there that it was God who turned Aaron's staff into a serpent rather than 17 very powerful but perhaps not powerful as God beings? Or what evidence is there that it was God and not extraterrestrials? Now, I don't for a second believe that there were 14 or 17 gods or extraterrestrials causing Aaron's staff to turn into a snake. But I also don't for a second believe it was God doing that. And so the burden is on person who thinks that it was God to say why that's the hypothesis that's preferable to the others I just mentioned. And if you can't justify belief that it's God by showing it's the best explanation, then we have no reason to think that it was God who was the cause behind the staffs turning into a serpent. And so we have no reason to think it was actually a miracle. So next you make the argument that a higher prob- improbability of an event raises the bar for belief in its testimony. Basically, that the more rare an event is, the more likely it becomes that detected incidents are in fact false positives. Uh, is your sound okay over there? Oh, okay. I thought, uh, thought things went weird for a second. I'm just, uh, I'll start over with that question. I got an echo at first and then some other things, but no problem. Okay. So next you make the argument that a higher improbability of an event raises the bar for belief in its testimony. Basically, that the more rare an event is, the more likely it becomes that detected incidents are in fact false positives. You suggest that this doesn't equate the highly improbable with the impossible, just that in these cases, testimony alone isn't enough. There's there's different ways to, to think about why that's true. That is why it's true that the less probable a given event is, the better your evidence needs to be in order to be justified in believing it. Here's one kind of uh, mundane example that illustrates the point. Suppose that you are diagnosed with a a fatal disease and uh, the test you're told is is 99% reliable. But the side effects for taking the cure, which is available to you, are also horrible. They, they, they cause pustules to grow, grow all over your body. Uh, perhaps they shorten your lifespan. Uh, perhaps it, it makes you uh, blind. So you have this question, assuming you want to continue to live when you're blind and covered with pustules and uh, have a shortened lifespan, do you take this cure? Now the test is 99% reliable. It sounds like if you tested positive, you should take this cure. But what's, what's missing from this description of the situation is something known as the base rate of the disease. The base rate of the disease is simply how frequent the disease is in the population. 
So if the disease is fairly frequent, so that um, in a population of a thousand people, maybe one person has it, then the test, given its reliability, is uh, more likely to be correct than if the disease is very rare. If the disease is very rare, so that only one in a million people has it, then given that the test is 99% accurate, which means, say, that it'll be wrong one in 100 times, well, then in a population of a million, for every 100 people in that million, there's going to be one that the test says has a disease. And that means that you're going to have, well, what's a, what's a million divided by 100? It's 10,000. You're going to have 10,000 10, people being told that they have this disease when they don't have it by that test. So the less frequent the disease, the more reliable your test needs to be in order for it to actually be meaningful. Here's a simpler example. You learn from Sally, the fourth grader, all sorts of boring facts about her school day, and she's a reliable witness when she tells you that, that her friend Anne had a birthday today, you can trust her. And when she tells you that her friend Tommy stubbed his toe, you can trust her. She's, she's reliable. But then she tells you one day that she was abducted by aliens and spent the last 12 years flying through wormholes in outer space and undergoing medical tests and the rest of that. That's, that's quite a tale. Now, she's no less reliable than she was before, but even though we were fine believing her before and justified believing her, when she starts telling us about being abducted by aliens, that's such an improbable event that her ordinary reliability is no longer sufficient to justify her belief that she was abducted by aliens. Being abducted by aliens is such an unlikely thing that what we should do is think about whether a normally reliable subject should still be believed in the face of such an unusual event. And in this case, I hope everyone would agree with me, we shouldn't take Sally's claim to be sufficient to justify her belief that she was really abducted by aliens. Instead, what we should do is think about what other explanations there might be for why she's claiming to be abducted by aliens. And my bet is that if we compared two hypotheses, say that she was abducted by aliens against another, like she had seen a movie the night before she went to sleep about alien abductions and dreamt the whole thing, it's that second hypothesis we should prefer, simply because abduction by aliens is so improbable. Now, of course, this is relevant to miracles because miracles are, by definition, as I understand them, extremely improbable events. They're the kinds of things that almost never happen. So that means, just like just like a test for disease has to be more and more reliable, the less probable the disease, or just like Sally's testimony should be more and more reliable, the more incredible the tale she tells us, if we're to be justified in believing these tales. If we learn of a miracle, then the testimony, the evidence on the miracle's behalf has to be super, super reliable in order for us to accept that the miracle actually occurred. And this we simply don't have. There's, think about it this way. We believe in certain historical events like the Civil War, Kennedy's assassination, 
the destruction of Pompeii. And for all of these events, which were improbable, we have good evidence. We're justified in believing that Pompeii was destroyed in 79 AD because we have good evidence to that effect. And that was an improbable sort of thing. So now take a miracle, which is even less probable than, say, the destruction of Pompeii, and ask whether the evidence we have for that miracle is at least as good, and it has to be actually far better than the evidence we have for Pompeii's destruction. And I think everyone should agree that the evidence we have isn't as good, which means that we're not justified in believing miracles. Right. And in your next chapter, you actually do turn more to historical examples. Um, You run through a list of the various kinds of evidence that historians use to support belief in past events. And then you use that list to assess and compare the reliability of a couple of historically historical events for comparison, particularly uh, Caesar's crossing of the Rubicon and the events described in the Book of Mormon. I should say I'm not an historian. I don't have training uh, in the um, analysis of historical events. But there are some fairly, uh, I think, well uh, agreed upon criteria for trying to decide whether to believe a certain event uh, actually occurred in, in history. And so historians look at, at different sources, sources of evidence. So they, they look at written records, for instance, um, Of course, we're not going to have written records for all historical events because writing is a fairly recent innovation. But if we had written records, that would be a good source of evidence because written records are the kinds of things that can be transmitted with some uh, fidelity through the centuries. Um, We also have among our, our list of reasons to accept something as evidence for an historical event, what, um, what Richard Carrier calls the ascent of enemies. So the idea here is that it's one thing to get written records from people who, for one reason or another, are all positively disposed to uh, believing that such an event, that a given event occurred, or because they have motives for wanting others to think that an event occurred. But suppose we have written records or um, records of some sort from someone who, in fact, would have been unhappy that such an event occurred. Uh, Caesar's crossing the Rubicon is a good example because, of course, when Caesar crossed the Rubicon, he did so uh, at the cost of the Roman Republic. Uh, and lots of supporters of the Roman Republic were unhappy with Caesar crossing the Rubicon. Among them was Cicero, who couldn't stand Caesar. And yet we have written records from Cicero saying, yes, in fact, Caesar crossed the Rubicon. Yes, he caused all this trouble. There's simply no motivation for Cicero to have been making that up. So it's a valuable source of evidence insofar as Cicero would have had no ulterior motives in talking about Caesar crossing the Rubicon unless Caesar actually had done that. So written records, ascent of enemies, those are two important criteria. Physical evidence is another. Uh, We have, when thinking about Caesar, we have coins that have been imprinted with uh, the events of Caesar crossing the Rubicon. We have 
inscriptions, talking about uh, the conscription of soldiers uh, into Caesar's army. So we have all this physical evidence of the actual crossing of the river. Fourthly, we have reliable accounting. We have uh, historians working during Caesar's lifetime and decades and several and a century or so after Caesar's lifetime who are interviewing witnesses, who are compiling information about, about the crossing, and all of this material is still available to us today. And finally, there are what's known as implicating consequences. So one reason to think that Caesar actually crossed the Rubicon is because having done so, the world was changed in certain ways, in ways that wouldn't have occurred had he not crossed the Rubicon. So there was a big civil war. There was the end of the Republic and the start of a uh, um, uh, an emperorship, so an empire. None of this would have happened had Caesar not crossed the Rubicon. So given those consequences, that's another reason to believe that an event actually occurred. So I've just listed five kinds of evidence that historians would look at in order to try to justify their belief that a certain event, an event that, of course, is unavailable to us today, lacking time machines, that this event actually occurred. And then when we take these criteria and turn them to the question of miracles, it looks as if miracles are just not the kinds of things that we can justify in the same way that historians, as a matter of routine, would justify their belief in other sorts of historical events. So, um, I mean, we could talk about the resurrection. Now. Sure. Did, did you want to talk about the Book of Mormon at all in this? Or um, I think in, in a lot of ways, uh, what you discuss in terms of Jesus's resurrection covers some of the same ground. Yeah. Yeah, I think it does. Um, the, the Book of Mormon is, is, is kind of an amusing case because it's the sort of thing, the more you read about it, the more you, the more absurd it just seems. Um, so absurd, of course, that, that the creators of South Park thought it would be a good idea to create a, uh, a kind of uh, <laughs> a, uh, a blockbuster uh, Broadway hit on the basis of the Book of Mormon. Uh, and the Book of Mormon purports to uh, tell a story, well, it tells the story of, of the uh, people who left the Tower of, of Babel and settled in South America, and uh, the story becomes even more incredible. Jesus comes to visit them after his crucifixion, and of course, all of these stories involving the Jedites and the Lamanites and the Nephites gets told in this Book of Mormon that, only, that is only uh, known by one person, Joseph Smith, and uh, so our our only source of evidence about all of these events that roughly 14 million people believe comes through this 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 single person, and uh, you'd expect if these events had really occurred that we'd have things like written records. Uh, where are there any record re- written records of these settlers of South America? We'd have physical evidence somewhere upwards of 40 million people, it's claimed, even though the population of the world was only 100 million at the time, were settled in South America, the, the Jedi, 
uh, the, I'm forgetting the names, Jadeites or something. Jadeites, okay. thank you. And then Nephites and the Lamanites. And if if they actually lived in South America, it's bizarre that they didn't leave a single bead or trinket behind. Um, we don't have any kind of reliable accounting. We don't have any uh, history of correspondence, any sort of transmission of stories from these people. All we have are what gets funneled through uh, this single individual, Joseph Smith. So as far as meeting criteria for justifiable historic, justifying historical evidence, the Book of Mormon is a, is a sad tale indeed. And again, um, we don't need just routine run-of-the-mill kinds of evidence to accept these miraculous events. Because miraculous events are so improbable, the evidence for them has to be especially good. And yet we find that in the case of the Book of Mormon, the evidence is not even routinely good. It's bad. So it's so far from the kinds of evidence that would be required for justifying belief in those sorts of events that uh, you'd have to be just completely irrational to accept that these sorts of things occurred. And and the story of Jesus's resurrection doesn't fare any better, actually. Um, we don't have any written records from the period in which Jesus was presumably uh, crucified. Jesus was probably illiterate. His followers were probably illiterate. The most recent written accounts of what happened in Jesus' Jesus's final days were written by people far away from where these events occurred and decades after the events occurred. So there's nothing like the kind of written record we have for other historical events that were justified in believing. We don't have physical evidence. Uh, an empty tomb doesn't count as physical evidence of someone's being there because it's empty. Uh, the reliable accounting, uh, you know, we have historians like Plutarch telling us about Caesar's, Caesar's crossing the Rubicon, but reliable accounting uh, is just not there for Jesus's resurrection. When we think about the difference between Plutarch's account of Caesar and the gospel's account of Jesus's life, th the differences are vast. So, let me just speak a little bit about that. When wondering whether we should accept Plutarch's account of Caesar's crossing the Rubicon, there, there are sort of two questions we need to think about. We need to think about whether the sources on which Plutarch is depending are reliable sources, whether he can trust the sorts of sources that he's finding. That's one question. And then the second question is whether our present-day copies of Plutarch are um, faithful to Plutarch's original. So you can imagine corruption coming into either of these two sorts of two sorts of um, uh, arenas. There might be corruption in the sense that Plutarch's witnesses were lying or confused or simply didn't have their facts straight. And then there's the second sort of corruption, which is maybe Plutarch's sources were great, but in the centuries following Plutarch's original document, the transmission of the document was corrupted. And so we no longer have a faithful rendering of what happened. Okay. 
So now we can ask the, the same sorts of things about the Gospels, where the the sources that the authors of Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John relying on reliable sources. And then the second question is, even if the sources were reliable, did the transmission of the Gospels that the authors of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, wrote, was the transmission process good so that what we have today is a fair rendering of what was actually written in the, uh, in the seconds, in the late first, early second century AD? And uh, I think the answer to both those questions is, is no. Would you would you like me to talk about that at all? Oh, uh, if you'd like to, sure. Because I imagine some listeners would have more questions along those two particular details. Yeah, sure. So it's actually kind of fun to read about what your typical uh, citizen believed during the time that Jesus was walking the earth. So I actually found a book that uh, discussed sorts of ordinary beliefs that uh, that citizens who were contemporaries of Jesus would have had. Uh, and these people, it turns out, the, the people who would have been listening to Jesus talk in the street and following alongside Jesus, these people were superstitious. They believed all sorts of crazy things that no fifth grader today would ever believe they had an, an inkling about how to go about testing or justifying certain kinds of beliefs. So just to take some examples, they believed that um, if you had an earache, it would be good to pour some boar's urine into your ear and that would cure your, your earache. They believed that if you took saliva from someone who had, was fasting, it could cure your eye disease but as well, you could make a mixture of goat dung and honey to cure your, your eye disease. Um, so these are the, the kinds of things that they believed, and they presumably didn't put much time into trying to test these beliefs. I don't think uh, they would have had much faith in boar's urine as a cure for earaches if someone thought, well, I've got two earaches. Let me put boar's urine into one of them and do nothing with the other and see what happens. Um, they would have discovered probably that boar's urine didn't do anything for their ears. So the point is simply that the kinds of people who were maybe being used as sources by the authors of the four Gospels were people who were uneducated people who are unsophisticated about how to think about testing beliefs. These were also people who would have accepted the stories of resurrection from not just Jesus, but from many other people. It's not as if Jesus were the only person to have been claimed to resurrect someone. And so I regard them as simply unreliable witnesses. I would not take their word for, um, for uh, claims about Jesus's resurrection. I don't think they were equipped to make that judgment. And then the second point is about the transmission of these, these gospels from, well, the earliest we have are probably in the one hundreds um, from that day until today. And there's been many fascinating accounts about how this, this process by which we now have today's Bible is one full of contingencies about the choices about which 
which uh, copies of the original transcripts to use. We know that the original versions of the Gospel of Mark didn't include the resurrection uh, in, in the end of them. We know that the account of the Trinity wasn't included in the original Gospels. These were things that were added later by scribes or by translators or by scholars. And their motivations for adding these things might have been evangelical. They might have been trying to spread the word as, as they understood it. So I have very little confidence that what we have in the New Gospels, uh, or sorry, what we have in the New Testament Gospels are anything like reliable accounting. And finally, the, the point about implicating consequences, I pointed out that we know that Caesar crossed the Rubicon because of the consequences. But although Christianity did blossom into a very popular religion, we don't have to think that Jesus's resurrection was necessary for Christianity to spread. The only thing necessary was that people believe that Jesus was resurrected. Believing that he was resurrected would have done all the work that his actual resurrection would have done as far as the consequences we have today. And so, so in my view, uh, the, the historical evidence we have for Jesus's resurrection is weak. And this is especially troubling given my earlier point that his resurrection is such an improbable event that the evidence for it has to be better than the sort of evidence we have for things like the destruction of Pompeii and the assassination of Lincoln. And surely it's not better than that. Right. Yeah. It's hard to, it's hard to argue with that when you put it that way. Um, <laughs> I think so. But then, you know, I started this conversation as an atheist as well. So, but, but your point about reliable accounting has always been a major one for me. I mean, these people, they thought that an epileptic seizure was evidence of um, demon possession. You know, how, how do you take those people very seriously? But but in today's context, um, and this is where we get to the million-dollar question here at the end of your book, and that is, um, so what? Uh, when do unjustified beliefs matter, and when are they irrelevant in today's society? And I think this kind of points back to what you were talking about, about why you wrote this book in the first place. Yes, it, it does. Um, I have this view that it's okay to believe uh, to have to accept a belief, to believe something without justification in some contexts and, and not in others. And the difference is that the belief can vary in its significance. And by significance, I mean how much difference it makes to how much to how you live your life. A belief that is very significant in this way, I think, requires a lot of justification. And uh, if the belief doesn't, doesn't have much significance, then you don't need a lot of justification. So just to see how this, this works, imagine that you test positive for pancreatic cancer. This is a bad disease. This is a disease that is, is going to kill you if it's advanced far enough along. And so a positive test for this disease, if I tested positive, for this, I would, I would change my life overnight. I would quit my work. I would ask my wife to take a leave of absence from hers. And we would spend my remaining days doing the things that I sort of dreamed about doing once I retire. 
Uh, on the other hand, if I test positive for strep throat, which is not a very consequential disease, I would not change my life very much. I would simply take the antibiotics that the doctor prescribed. So now, given that my belief in pancreatic cancer has more significance than my belief that I have strep throat, I want, to justifi- I want more justification for my first belief than for my second. That is, I'm going to get a second opinion about that pancreatic cancer diagnosis because it's not good enough, given how significant that belief is, it's not good enough to have just one doctor's opinion. But for strep throat, eh, if one doctor tells me I have it, that's good enough. I don't need more justification. So the more significant the belief is in my life, the more I want justification for it. And this is true, I think, for religious people. If you're the kind of Christian who basically is a Christian on Easter and a Christian on Christmas, or if you're the kind of Jew who celebrates just the high holy days uh, but doesn't keep kosher, doesn't go to temple every, every Saturday, well, then maybe you don't really care about whether your belief in God is justified. But on the other hand, if you're the kind of Christian who say homeschools their children because public schools don't provide enough religious, religious education, and you think that um, you should be spending your Sundays in church, and you think that you should be uh, lobbying your politicians to, uh, to prevent abortion and to prevent gay marriage and uh, really structuring your life around your religious beliefs, well, then it seems to me that you do want justification for your beliefs. It's much more important that your belief be justified. And this is especially so given that your beliefs affect not just you, they affect how others live. If you're going to be telling other people who they're allowed to marry and who they're not allowed to marry, or telling women whether they are permitted to have abortions, then it's really important that your belief be justified because it's not just making a difference to you now, it's making a difference to other people as well. So my view is that if you're the kind of religious person whose religion is a centerpiece of your life and is also a cause for you to try to control how other people live their lives, then it's, it's, it's morally incumbent on you that you have justification for your beliefs. Well, Larry, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you very much for agreeing to come on the show. But before we go, good, good, so did I. Before we go, though, tell us what you're currently working on. I am currently working on a book that's going to sound as if uh, I've given up on my uh, skepticism about religion, but I haven't. Uh, the, the book was sort of born from my reading the so-called New Atheists, people like um, Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and Alexander Rosenberg and uh, and Daniel Dennett and Richard Dawkins and not so much, not not all of these people, but some of these people uh, have made claims on the basis of science. They say that challenging particular claims that have traditionally fallen to philosophers and uh, theists to answer. So, for instance, 
there are a number of scientists, in addition to these new atheists, who look to science and say, on the basis of science, free will doesn't exist. And that's kind of interesting because free will is a topic that has traditionally fallen to uh, uh, theologians and philosophers to try to understand. And now we have scientists who are good at telling us, say, about whether a species evolved or about whether or how the universe started or about um, uh, uh, the, the size of the galaxy, the size of the universe. Scientists are good at that stuff, and I have no problem accepting what they say about those issues. But when they start making pronouncements about topics like free will, topics like morality, I think they're overstepping their boundaries. And so I'm working on a book in which I'm explaining why neither science nor religion is equipped to answer what I'm calling the big questions, questions about free will and questions about morality and questions about consciousness. So it's a book that's going to be promoting the value of philosophy for understanding these these questions and showing how religious answers and scientific answers both get both get things wrong. Uh, I like the sound of that. I really hope you might consider coming back when it's out and published. I'd love to interview you about that one too. I would love to do that. Fantastic. All right. Well, let me thank you again. It's been really fun. I really enjoyed your book. And for any listeners who are thinking about picking this up and reading it, I'd encourage you to do so. It's written in a very fun, easy to read. It's intellectually heavyweight, certainly, but it still manages to be fun and easy to read. So I would encourage you to check it out. Yeah. Thank you so much, Larry. Thank you, Carolyn. All right. Goodbye. Bye. I want to thank you for listening to New Books in Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Professor Larry Shapiro about his book, The Miracle Myth, Why Belief in the Resurrection and the Supernatural is Unjustified. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review on iTunes, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. The New Books Network is a not-for-profit organization, so all the buzz you can help us generate goes a long way to supporting this work. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. I've also mentioned in the past that I'm looking for a co-host for this show. My goal is always to get out two interviews per month, but at certain times of the year, this is more challenging. So with a co-host, we'd be able to be more faithful to our publication schedule. You can find me on Twitter at Carrie Linland. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E. L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. Also, be sure to like the New Books and Secularism channel on Facebook and Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. And let me know, did you find it fascinating? Do you have any questions? I'd love to hear what you think about our interviews, so feel free to contact me there. Goodbye, until my next conversation about New Books in Secularism.